Okay. All right, great. Welcome everyone to Affirmative Interaction. I'm Jordan Smart and we are here with Michael Nixing, uh, Logan Stout, Adrian Marston, Garrison Hayes, and we have a special guest here. Yeah, 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 yeah. The lovely, the genius, Simone Marshall. Simone is a graduate of Belmont University where she attended law school. And she currently is a barred attorney who works at the uh, attorney uh, general's office in DC. Uh, Simone, thank you for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Very good, very good. So we're just gonna do a quick check-in. Guys, please tell me how you've been doing. I hope you're not going crazy. Uh, how are you guys feeling with uh, quarantine, everything, day-to-day -day stuff? Life in New York. Thank you, Donnell. Shout out to the faithful the one. The homie, bro. The, the homie faithful. Let's go. I'm super curious. If we actually are live from NY, is he going to do a different hashtag or will it be the same one? If we're ever live from NY, Donnell's in person, bro. Literally. <laughs> That's a fact. That's a fact. Oh, man. That's it. Very good, very good. So I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm excited because this is my last episode from my parents' basement. I've booked a ticket. I'm going back to Berkeley. I'm going to be in California next week. That makes me Whoa. like somewhat sad, but also like excited. Um, I do love being with my mom and dad because they're going to watch this. And But other than that, like I'm excited to go like just kind of back to normal loft living mm -hmm. there. A little bit more to myself. The ticket was only sixty-four dollars, so that was lit. So yeah, mm. I'm excited to get back. That cheap flight, bro. <laughs> and that cheap, come visit. Very cheap. I hope you make it safely. I mean, are you feeling nervous about having to fly during the virus, or bro? I've feel? been to Home Depot and Lowe's and Menards since this all happened, and there's thousands of people inside of those stores, and so I, I feel prepared. I've I've interacted with lots of people that think this. it's actually funny. What, what, kind, what kind of people? people? What kind of people? Okay, so it's it's a <laughs> it's a lot of white people, but oh, that's not um, what I meant. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, construction workers, a lot of white people in Missouri, but it is funny because every time my dad and I'll bump into somebody that they'll recognize us, they'll like be like, "Oh, the virus," and then they'll see us with masks on and be like. Oh, these people believe in this. Like it's just like some, some they're just like, well, yeah, I got laid off because of this virus, and we're like wearing masks, and they're like, yeah, the the virus is scary, and it's just it's just kind of kind of funny how how they interact. But I'm excited to get back uh, to California and shelter in place forever. But. <laughs> well, that's what's up, man. Um, I'm uh, you're just asking us how we're doing, right? Yeah, Jordan. Yes, yes. Okay. Please continue. Just confirming. Uh, yeah. So, still, still bad. Yeah, week nine of this. Um, still, still not doing great. You know what I mean? Oh, I think we lost Adrian, but I'm sure he'll be back. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's just been, it's just been what it is, man. You know, um, week nine at the crib. Um, and so, I mean, we're making the best of it, obviously, you know, um, it, it always could be worse and, and all that type of stuff, but, um, yeah, I'm tired of being in the house, bro. I'm just, 
Oh, there's no other way to put that, man. You know what I mean? So that's where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. There's, you know, there's just so much defeat in your voice right now. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, love, I love it. Just keep, <laughs> keep, keep, keep it real. We're making the best of it. Just keeping it real. Yeah. Keeping it real. You know, honestly, this is one of the better days. Um, I'm feeling very upbeat, very free. Um, lovely. It's been a great uh, several hours even. Um, I, I, I can't complain. I'm feeling most energized, honestly, that I've ever been. So that's where I am. Well, just, just, to, just to bring the viewers in, he just woke up from a nap. And so all, all, that, all, that, all that's a lie, bro. But thanks for being here. Throw it all out the window. How about you, Adrian? Man, I'm I'm surviving. Um, COVID still trash. Quarantining is still not fun at all. But I'm I'm alive and well. I honestly cannot complain. Honestly, it's it's good to see your faces for sure. Miss Simone, it's good to have you. Definitely glad mm -hmm. to join us. Definitely. So. Yeah, Jordan, how are you? How are you doing, sir? Uh, thank you. Thank you, sir, so much for asking. I really appreciate that. Um, I'm actually doing good, thankfully. Um, Amani is making this, my partner is making this 100% more enjoyable. Uh, this week, she dude, has please. us eating. Hmm? Oh, I definitely will. She made, uh, dude, she made tikka masala from scratch. True. I saw that post. I was jealous. I'm not going for yeah, it. It's, it's amazing. It, it's, it's tofu, it's chicken. So we're having a completely meatless week here. And then we had big salad for lunch, which is kind of a Seinfeld reference, but it's also just getting a whole bunch of vegetables big and salad. putting it in a salad, dude, which is really good. And then we had smoothie bowls for breakfast. So currently, I'm just in heaven. I'm pretty sure I, I, know, I died and got sent up there, depending on the religion you believe in. But it's, it's pretty okay. good. You said something about Seinfeld. Don't understand the reference. Sorry. <laughs> I got it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, no context for that. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you, Logan, for supporting yeah. me in this, in this troubling time. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what about oh, Simone? Man. I want to hear how you're doing. Oh, I'm, doing, I'm doing okay. I'm doing well. I mean, definitely been kind of a crazy week with everything going on. We're going to talk about some of it today, but um overall super thankful the sun is finally out um so you know we're cruising on that funny story about home depot though one of my girls in nashville went to home depot today um with her husband and they were wearing masks and somebody came up to them and said now would be a really good time to rob a bank and they wow. were like what is happening so just that's that's who's at home depot michael thank you for your question I'm, I'm clear. I, that's, that's what I needed. That's the clarity I needed. That was actually me and my dad that said that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Sandy. Thank you. Yeah. Isn't that I good? Feel elevated. I feel elevated. If it was a curb reference, it would be a, you know an actual good show, and I would know the reference. But. <laughs> Another <laughs> good show. Freezing cold. <laughs> it's like you know. Imagine hating a show, um, and also enjoying the second show of the same creator. If anything, it makes less sense when you say it out loud. 
<laughs> no, I mean you you get all your the crap out your system over like that 10 11 season and you make you make the show that you actually wanted to make long and it's better. I didn't see Larry David on a short debate. On uh, the last dance with Michael Jordan though, you know, talking about dominating the 90s, I didn't see him. Oh my god. <laughs> well, if they make a documentary about the 2000s, I'm sure he'll be on there. So, yeah. Fair, fair, fair. MJ was on the Wizards then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. I'm glad everyone is doing okay and well. Um, unfortunately, we were informed on a deep tragedy that happened on the February on February 23rd of this year in Brunswick. Ahmad Aubrey is a name that we all know very well in just a few short days. And of course, it's something that has been incredibly heartbreaking and that heartbreak has reverberated across the entire black community and, and the community and our allies, which I know all of us do appreciate the people that are supporting you know, Black Lives Matter movement and everyone that's trying to seek justice and justice hopefully will be sought in what happened and what happened was um, Ahmad was running in Brunswick, a coastal city uh, between Savannah, Georgia and Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and he was followed by Gregory McMichael, uh, McMichael, excuse me, who was 64 and his son, Travis uh, McMichael, who is about 34 years old in his pickup truck. So long story short, we really want to make sure we get into this discussion. Um, Amar was uh, Ahmad was running. Uh, they thought that he was a burglar because there have been burglaries that they said were happening in the report burglaries that were happening in the community. They thought that he was the guy. They saw that he was running through the neighborhood. They accosted him. Um, they started following him. And then when he came into conflict with Gregory, uh, Michael, I believe he got into a fight and a gun went off. Um, Aubrey was killed and, oh, sorry, come in. I think it was Travis who ended up shooting. Yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry, excuse me. It was Travis that got into a fight with Aubrey. He was killed and um, I'm sorry, I'm kind of, I'm having a, I'm literally having a hard time just telling this cause it's just yeah. really, okay. So he was killed. And I think the most infuriating aspect just for me is that we just found out about this despite it happening in February, of, uh, the 23rd of February of this year, a, a video was leaked. And coincidentally enough, what I found out was that the video was leaked by one of uh, the guys I was also chasing, um, Ahmad, I'm blanking on his name right now, but uh, it was found out today what, what, what I was reading was that he leaked the video because he thought that it would help his two friends, the two people that accosted um, Ahmad, it would help them uh, have their names cleared, which is a little ironic. So that's kind of the overview of what happened. And I just want to ask you guys, how are you feeling first? How has this affected you? I know things like this are happening more and more, it seems like, or at least we're just becoming more aware of it. When you read this story, what was your immediate emotional reaction? Anyone just jump in? 
I mean, well, I do think it's probably important for us to recognize that, I mean, even the way we tell or retell the story matters. And um, Ahmad and the McMichaels, uh, you know, I, I think, Jordan, you mentioned that they got into a fight. And honestly, even that retelling already has a certain bit of narration that exists outside of what we know. We don't know if they got into a fight per se. We don't know if it was a fight that it almost it almost implies equal ground in the interaction. When in reality, the camera dips off, and when it comes back, we see that they are engaged in some type of interaction hand to hand. But is it a fight? We really cannot say. And, I, and the reason why I think that's important to make that distinction is because there are those who are trying to narrate this story and say that the McMichaels, the assailant who ultimately killed Ahmaud Arbery, they're trying to say that the that, that this was that they were defending themselves against an attack by Ahmad. And again, it's just really important to, to say that you can't see with any type of clarity whether or not Ahmad engaged them or what happened. What we do know is that they followed him on. What we do know is that uh, Travis and Michael got out of his vehicle with a gun in his hand. What we do know, based on the video, is that Ahmad tried to run around the car on the opposite side. What we do know is that they reported that Ahmad was running in one direction, and when they cut him off, he turned around to run in the opposite direction. We do know without a shadow of a doubt that these two individuals, Gregory and Travis McMichael, were in hot pursuit, their words, of Ahmaud Arbery and ultimately killed him. And, and so I'm just really sensitive to any piece of the narrative that could lead one to believe that Ahmaud Arbery was in any way responsible for his death. I, it, like, I, I just absolutely reject it. It actually makes me angry to even consider or to allow the narrative to have any space where it might seem as though he did anything, even if he was just to fight with them, that would somehow merit him being shot and killed by these two white men. Yeah, I, <clears throat> you know, well said, Garrison. Uh, I want to you know, echo and, you know, restate everything you just said, for sure. Um, I'd say as far as, you know, how I'm feeling or how I felt when I heard about the scenario, the thing I sort of knew because, you know, we started hearing about the murder of Ahmad, you know, before the video came out. And I just knew for sure, because it's this it always happens like this. Every time the video comes out and is released, it always contradicts what law enforcement or what the people that are supposedly in the know have said happened. Yeah. And that's what happened in this case. Um Ahmad Arbery's mother, who, you know, Mother's Day was this past Sunday which is the same weekend as what would have been Ahmaud Arbery's birthday on Friday. Um, 
I thought about the fact that law enforcement called her and told her that Ahmad was killed by a homeowner while attempting a burglary. That's what they told her. Mm-hmm. Not that he was, there were these two white men who assumed that they thought that they saw some sort of burglary happening or whatever they thought they saw. Um, they didn't have the investigative the investigatory capacity to actually follow up on what it is they thought they saw, but they thought that they saw enough to arm themselves. And, you know, I mean, there, there's so many different things that they could have done short of killing him. That, that's, that's the thing that I kind of keep getting back to, you know, if you really are this concerned citizen, um, you, you see an unarmed black man, you know, running or walking down the street. Um, if they were concerned that some sort of a, a burglary or something to that effect happened, they could have, you know, they did. They could have just called 911 like they did and actually sort of listened to the dispatchers as they were trying to probe into what they were saying. You even hear dispatchers saying, well, what's the crime that's been committed? Like, what, what crime did you see him commit? What's the issue? Is he on the property and he's not supposed to be? None of those, none of those yeah. questions could be answered by by George and Travis at the time. And everybody's trying to retroactively say, oh, well, they saw him commit a burglary or they saw him trespassing. Well, why is it that when they were asked those questions in the heat of the moment as they're observing, whatever they say they observed, that they can't articulate that that's what they're observing? Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but, but these people on YouTube and Instagram and on Infowars know exactly what they were thinking when they were in pursuit of this person. There's also the lie that there was a string of burglaries happening in the neighborhood when there hadn't been anything that had happened since the beginning of January. And this is the end of February. So it's not like there's some weekly burglary that's happening, you know, that they could have connected Ahmad to. Um, And then there's also the deeper fact that Law enforcement, actually, I do want to to be clear about this. The, the the responding officers did think that there was probable cause to arrest both of them. But the, the local DA who knew both of them called, and this is all happening like in the moment. So so these yeah. so these two white men are important enough for the DA to get involved and say, don't even arrest them. Well, yeah, he worked for that DA for what thirty yeah, years. Yeah, he worked as a private investigator and all this different type of stuff. So you know, not even like let's arrest him and you know, I'll show up and like figure it out later because we know that probably would have happened anyway. But they didn't even take that step. You know, she, she said, "No, don't even arrest them. Whatever they said, take that as what the situation was, um, and and just leave it at that." And then on top of all of that, you have this video that they all had seen. And, you know, I, I'd love to hear from Simone specifically around that that crazy letter that that dude wrote after sh- sh- saying that the video somehow uh, corroborates the belief that uh, there was no probable cause to arrest these men, even not even that they didn't commit a crime, but there was no probable cause to arrest them on the basis of the video, which is absurd. Um so beyond all of that, it's just the reality that um, this was all seen. And, and then the attorney of that third person, 
this is what's just kind of twisted about it to me. This is like maybe even a side issue. The attorney of this third person who was pursuing thought that by releasing this video, it, yeah. would, it would exonerate the McMichaels. Like he actually leaked it himself, the attorney. Yeah. Saying that, oh, okay, well, everybody will see that this was no big deal. In his conception of what he saw, oh, yeah, he clearly deserved to die. I'll just release this yeah. video and everybody else will see that and they'll surely agree with that. So it's just like there's just so many levels of embedded disregard for black life in the scenario that when you really internalize it and you really like take it off for what it is, um, it's what Bald it's what Baldwin says. You know, we're back in our constant state of rage, and that's how I'm feeling. Yeah, it is. Um... It is insane to me that the way that um, Barnhill, who is the second DA on the case, so first there they started out in Brunswick, but she recused herself, um, saying that um, I think Jackie Johnson, I believe, is her name, saying mm -hmm. that she was um, too closely tied with the former employment of um, of the of. Uh, Gregory, Gregory, Gregory. <laughs> and so you know, Barnhill has strewn together several statutes to try to create this narrative that somehow walking up to a person armed wow. is going to be an acceptable sort of <laughs> option for handling a citizen's arrest or handling um, some sort of, you know, detaining of a person. And it's absurd to me that they would actually have the nerve to do that because what we're looking at here, I mean, first of all, we don't know whether Ahmad actually, I, I would argue that he was not committing a burglary at all to begin with. If you watch the video of him committing this alleged burglary, um, right. he, no specific intent there showing that he had intent to commit a felony, which is part of a burglary that's not in there whatsoever. He's simply in a, an unoccupied, unfinished future dwelling, yeah. um, yeah. looking around is what he's doing and not causing yeah, any problems. Looking around. Yeah, he doesn't have weapons. He's not taking anything. He's not doing anything wrong. And the fact that after he leaves, if, if this is even him, we don't even know that this is Ahmad in the home, right? But but it, let's just say, is it him? Maybe, okay. It, let's just say worst case scenario, it's him. He leaves, he runs, and then men approach him with a weapon. And worst case scenario for Ahmad, he fights back at giving them, you know, some sort of reason for them to to shoot him. No, like you, somebody approaches you with a gun, you are going to fight for your life. You're going to want to have some sort of like, no, no, get away from me with that. And we don't even know if he was fighting in a way that was designed to be, you know, to start something. Mm. He, he was probably just trying to get away. 
He was probably just trying to get away from what looked like a very intense, escalated situation. Um, and it's just all facts considered is there's just no, I don't understand how anybody could say, hey, you have a right to carry a shotgun and you have a right to a citizen's arrest. Well, approaching somebody with a gun in the name of his citizen's arrest is somehow makes you the authority. And that's kind of where we also get into like, and, and I'm about to be done, um, but that's kind of also where we get into like this discussion on white supremacy. I think this is like the pinnacle of that. In, in that they really determined in their mind that they had an unlimited amount of power and jurisdiction over this man's yep. body, that they could approach him with a weapon and say, you stop, stay in my custody over something that they're just totally, I mean, if he's innocent of this burglary, he has absolutely no context for whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, before we even like, I don't know, we get into like the arguments about, um, you know, what white supremacy exactly is. This is an example of, of a white person thinking that they are so supreme that they have the ability to have authority over this man's yeah. body yeah. just by saying it, just by showing up with a weapon. Yeah. Yeah. I was just gonna say, um, this this entire story, if I'm being very uh, transparent with you all, um, when I immediately saw the hashtag and realized that there was a video, I I had to promise myself that I wouldn't watch. And um, the emotions that I've kind of experienced in, in the last week or so, um, I, I I don't know if I if it's an accurate description to label it as either fatigue or or numb to to this overall um, conversation because it it honestly just feels like another chapter in a never ending book of trauma and uh, I think what's really bugged me and and I I feel like Nixon you you kind of touched on it and Simone elaborated with it a bit more is on every level of what we see in this video, the, the, the possibility of this being something that's motivated through race is an idea that so many white Americans refused to accept. No matter the video footage, no matter how much evidence came out, no matter how many uh, reporters showed different elements, of things that should immediately cause some concern about how this case is being handled. At every step of the way, these two individuals were given the ability to uh, 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 hold on to their innocence at every single step. And at some point, it, it really, it's very heartbreaking because I still can't, I can't watch that video because I feel like this is like, we're going in cycles, man. It, I don't really know. It feels as though with a video, it is still not enough to prove why a black life should matter. 
And when we say it should matter, it, it, it's literally in this instance where we can say, like, he's out on a jog, yo. It, it really is as simple as that. And I feel like we're, the, the story tries to get so overcomplicated. And like you said, Nixon, with the different people trying to add this, this spin of supposed nuance to the situation. But the reality is nothing in this encounter should have resulted in him dying. And that I think is what's so frustrating in this conversation. Nothing that you can say can justify the fact that this person is dead. No matter how many scenarios you try to spin it on, no matter how uh, how intentional you try to provide nuance to the situation, at the end of the day, I cannot comprehend how you can feel okay in sleeping at night knowing that you're comfortable with his life being lost. And that, I think, is a conversation that I don't think, I am to be very candid, I don't think white Americans recognize how evil that rhetoric comes, particularly if it comes from white Americans who claim to be Christians. It is very evil for you to feel comfortable in seeing that this young man's life was lost and you think it's justified because at some point you have to recognize that there is nothing godly about what happens in this scenario or how this story is being spun or how misinformation is being spread about his life or the situations in the story. And man, I, I didn't really read into this until like, I don't know, like a, a day, a day ago. Cause I, I just felt exhausted y'all. I, I gotta be very honest. I felt very, <laughs> very tired, man. I, I resonate with your, with what you're saying, Adrian, cause even trying to retell the story to intro the show, I was struggling because it, it's just, it, it's, it's so strange because, you know, you hear it and at first it just feels like, unfortunately, another black person has died. It feels like it's just becoming too common. But then that trauma, that pain, it, it, it's insidious. It just really creeps up on you. And today it was just really hitting me hard just thinking about the show. I'm like, yo, this is something that I'm gonna really be stressed about and, and considerably when I have kids, even just my brother, my brother tells me stories of when he would go to basketball and he would be my God. You know, accosted by white individuals that work there or that just go to the school mm. and tell him that you can't play here despite it being a completely public and legal thing for him to do. He just play basketball at an open gym and they were kicked out and they were threatening to call the police. And all of those things just are brought to my memory because I'm like, yo, my brother could have been in this situation. I could have been, my friends, my future kids could be in those situations. And it can be really hard to deal with. And sometimes it can be hard to really think about, you know, how do we beat this? Because there are just these racial structures that promote this kind of behavior, just like what Simone was saying. Some white people would just feel so emboldened to come out with a gun and mm. think that they can be a source of authority and you really can't. And just there, I, I was just researching just a little bit on some laws and there's a Georgia citizens arrest law that 
is obviously in Georgia that allows people to be able to move in that capacity. And again, these structures and these different systems that have been built through white supremacy allow people to do this to black and brown people. Mm. And it's disheartening to see because <laughs> when I have conversations with people and they're saying, you know, he should have done this and he should have done that and then he would still be alive. And it's like, bro, it's the it's the racist structures that our country is built on that allows this to happen. And I'm sorry, I'm just, I, Garrison, I, I see how you feel now when you just get fed up. Because we've had conversations like this before. But I'm just fed up at this point because I'm just tired of these structures really letting people kill us. And I, I'm, I don't want to hear anybody come with any kind of energy telling me that, hey, let's do this differently. You know, let's try to just remove race from the conversation. Let's have people move away from the idea of being a part of a group and let's try to see each other differently. Like, no, 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 no. You get rid of these racist policies, you get rid of, you fix how this country is built. You do that work. Black people, we're just trying to survive. Yeah. When I'm killed, make sure I get to receive justice. That's it. That's all that I want. Mm. And also just don't kill me. That too. So we won't even have to get here. So I don't want to hear anything other than let's make some actionable change. So this doesn't happen. Sorry if I ramble, but no, big facts. Not good. good. I don't even <laughs> damn, I don't want to go after that. Jordan is powerful. That's a lot to think about. I, I've got a few points I'd like to draw, you know, to possibly piggyback off of. But you know, I'm I'm tired of having to feel um, for for friends and and I guess I call it all y'all family, but um, feeling unsafe. I hate hearing this, um, knowing that my community is probably the community or definitely the community that that feeds this. Not only in um, feeding it as as white supremacy, but as the justification that everyone constantly looks for in these conversations. And I think this one shows us so mm. clearly that this is not two bad apples or three bad apples. This was a, a couple of bad white supremacist men that sought to, to murder a man that they thought was, was guilty of nothing more than having a dark colored skin. Um, mm followed by another person. And you can see it when you, when you watch that video, there is no verbal reaction from a man watching another man get murdered. There was no like that. Gasp. There was no, there was no yeah. like swearing. There was yeah. nothing. He was yeah. like, it was almost like he was saying, we got one off the streets. Like it was quiet. Mm. He was silent. And, and the DA now we've gone from three men taking it in their own hands to make a decision to take a person's life to a DA deciding that it was okay, that this was justified, that mm -hmm. murdering something. So we've gone from individual sense of racism to a systemic form of racism where yeah. we have a voted official that has said, we like that these people killed a person, a black man, and our streets are better for it. Therefore, we will see not only no justice, but not even an arrest. We we watched a video of two men literally killing someone, and we decided that they were legally okay to do that. 
Not only that, but police officers hid this video. Detectives hid this video. Families, friends knew about this thing. An entire community came together and said, we don't want this to make national media. We want to see this as something that can go under the wraps as this small thing. It actually took Sean King. Sean King had to be the person to finally read his emails enough to get this on a national stage so that we could we could see this as a case worthy of highlighting. And you know, he actually in, in some of his podcast work, he felt bad about that. Um, but like this isn't a couple of bad apples. We can't justify these individuals. This was a system that is national, not only state level, this is a national system where we cover crime up because we see it justified because of the color of someone's skin. That's point one for me. Number two, construction sites. I just want to point on this. When I was nine years old, my dad built our house that I'm currently in. We went literally every single Saturday, my entire family would go to building sites and we would walk through homes very wow. commonly. I've probably walked through a thousand homes in my life that's just like the one wow. Ahmad was in. And it's what's funny about it is literal builders want you to do this because you're seen as a buyer. You're seen as someone that could potentially buy this home. A lot of homes in the 90s especially were built as what they would call a spec house, which is a house that they build with hopes of selling it as opposed to a custom build, which would be for someone. You build a spec house, you think, oh, you know, are you interested? You don't go there do, They're typically during work hours when people are there because you're getting in their way. You don't want to bother them. You just want to go check out the floor plan, see how they've built things. That's what my dad wanted to do. He wanted to see how other homes were to get the flow of what our house was. Like it's very normal. I literally last time, anytime I see a build, I want to walk through there. Like it's a, my dad's a builder. I've always wanted to do this. And I've literally never in my entire life been questioned about, hey, what are you doing here? And I've been in them alone. I've been in them with friends. I've been in two men, you know, and they could say staking it out. But in reality, they saw a video of a man that they probably thought couldn't afford the home, didn't have any chance to buy the home, mm. couldn't work on their site. And so all they saw was criminal. And they thought, well, I can now hunt them down and kill them because they're doing something I don't agree with. The reality of the situation, I think, to break down the video just a little bit more is that the trespassing doesn't require shotguns. A confrontation doesn't yeah. re require firearms. It also doesn't require you to get in the back of a truck and get in a shooter stance to be ready to shoot someone if an altercation ensues. I mean, I get it. I know lots of people in my family that would take a gun to an altercation and say, hey, look, this is here and it's a warning. I mean, anyone that carries knows that when guns are involved, those are there for last resorts. That gun that those men were carrying were there for first resorts. They brought that yeah. as their loudest voice. Their cock was their biggest like moment that they wanted to say, listen here, you're not doing what we want you to do. And if you don't fall in line, you'll fall to the ground. And they were more right. willing to, to put him down than they were willing to actually have a conversation of what were you doing? We want you to wait here and tell that to police. There was no conversation. This guy was just there and they saw nothing but like criminal. They saw our community is better off without you. And so mm. no conversation is willing to be had. Uh, and so I feel upset that anyone would look at this and say, let's look for a, a reason to justify this. When even if he was hauling bags of, 
I mean, there was nothing there. The building supplies was lumber in there. Even if he was yeah. running down with two dollar two by fours, which is how much an eight foot two by four costs. Two dollar two by fours, and he had four of them. Like, what are you? What is? We're gonna we're gonna take a person's life. He didn't even have anything. He hadn't stolen anything. Like that narrative is dead. And we can't keep trying to justify murder by saying, oh, they shouldn't have been or they shouldn't have done. Mm. Reality is, is the reason he probably went after the guy, Travis, is because he knows that his town is full of white supremacist racists. And he probably knew that these men were at a Klan rally not that long ago. And he knew that they were dangerous. And he was probably fearful for his life, rightfully so, because they came there to ensure that he didn't make it out of that altercation anyways. Sorry to ramble there, but no, that, was good, that was wonderful. I, Thank you. Yeah, I totally. I mean, I appreciate the perspective in it, and I totally agree with what you're what you're saying, Logan. And I think Esther yeah. just brought a phenomenal perspective to the chat, uh, to the comments. She, she's talking here about how we have to move the conversation, not just from like these extreme racists. I mean, I've said mm -hmm. this to you all. But it is a white person's wildest dreams. It's the, it's their best case scenario for these individuals to be identified as KKK members or some type of yeah. like extremely well known racist group. Like, oh, are they yeah. like white nationalists? Like, white people would feel entire. The white racial frame thinks that racism happens when a white person calls a black person a nigger or when they are ready to lynch somebody or do something explicit. But the most remarkable thing about this story is that it is actually entirely unremarkable. Uh, black people yeah. are used to being followed by white people who think themselves the authority over the black body. We are used to being followed around in grocery stores. We're used to being followed around in department stores and malls. We're used to cops seeing the color of our skin and pulling us over for no other reason than driving while black. We're used to that. And so that happens all the time, which is why so many people who have the historical context of this situation, they have this situation placed squarely within the historical context of black America, know without a shadow of a doubt that this thing was a lynching. The, 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 mm -hmm. I saw earlier that people were talking about Candace Owens and, ha and I know I happen to have watched that video where she actually calls the like where she's responding to people calling this a lynching and she's like, there's no way. Like, how could how could this be a lynching? There are only thirty five hundred lynchings. But but what it actually really reveals is her ignorance when it comes to the term lynching. Period. Now, I happen to be married to somebody who who's actually done a great deal of research on 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 lynching. And, and I would love to hear from you, yeah. Simone. Um, what about this situation mirrors the the lynching that happened pre and even during and post the civil rights era? Can you tell us a little bit about your research and 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 how you came to kind of to kind of be somewhat, at least within our local context, an authority on lynching, particularly? I would definitely not say that I'm an authority, but I'm happy to speak on it for sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when I so when I lived at Nashville, when I was in law school, I actually worked on the Tennessee Historical Justice Coalition, which is basically geared towards looking into unsolved um, civil rights, violent civil rights infractions that took um, place over 
the course of many, many years, um, but mostly in the 19, mostly in the 1900s in the 20th century. And, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is that lynching is not just hanging someone. Lynching, the definition of lynching is actually killing someone before mm. they've had a trial. Hmm. Wow. And so here we have an explicit, a perfect example of a modern day lynching in that they suspected wow. this man, literally the perfect outlay. They suspected him in according to them. I don't even know if I believe that, but they suspected him of this alleged burglary and did not give him the opportunity for officers to have to go to um, a judge and to get a warrant for his arrest, to have to present facts that then create the, the, the standard that would cause them to get an arrest warrant. They didn't allow him to be handcuffed and taken to jail where there he's entitled to a trial and he's entitled to a lawyer. No, they took matters into their own hands and they said, you don't even deserve those things. You don't even deserve the opportunity to speak for yourself in court. You don't even deserve, and, and our criminal system is not by any means perfect. And so even in the criminal justice system, is he going to get a fair trial? I mean, the, the jury's yeah. out on that, right? But they didn't even give him that shot at, at going through the system and, and having that opportunity to be to go through what we have lauded for so long to be this American, you know, criminal justice system where we can go in and we're not, you know, guilty until it's proven innocent until proven guilty. Not in this case, for sure. It's so clear. Yeah. <clears throat> thank, thank you so much for breaking that down for us, Simone, and, and for all yeah. of the, the comments yeah. and Garrison for expounding on Esther's brilliant comment um, on the implicit bias in the situation. Um, this comment from Bree jumped out to me a bit while you were talking, Adrian, and, and I wanted to um, bring it back sort of to, to, to the conversation a bit. And this idea of Black people deserving the ultimate penalty, essentially just for being Black in white spaces. Um, I think it was Tim Wise um, who, who is a white anti-racist uh, educator who, when he, he was talking one day and they were talking to him about this whole epidemic that we're dealing with, mm -hmm. or really a pandemic that Black people have been dealing with for centuries. Um, and he said that it will continue as long as Black lives matter less than white comfort. Sheesh. My God. And, and I think that that's at the heart of all of these different scenarios. I think it's at the heart of why when for a lot of people, I mean, I won't, I won't even put a number on it, where a significant enough amount of people in, in white America particularly will not be vocal because, you know, the secret silent thoughts around this are, well, if that man was running down my street, I'd be pretty nervous too. Period. I'd be uncomfortable. And uh, if it's necessary to infringe upon the comfort level of that Black person just living in order for me to feel more comfortable, then I'm going to do so. If I see a group of Black people congregating, having a barbecue, 
and they're on the route that I usually like to walk and they're maybe being a little bit too loud, um, I'm going to call the police. Um, you know, if, if I'm in a dorm building and a black person is sleeping in a common area where I like to just maybe study or or I'm just maybe walking to and from and they're in, on that couch for a bit too long, I'm gonna call the campus or regular police on that person. Um, if a kid is playing with a toy gun, which hundreds of other white kids have similarly done, I'm gonna call the police and that police officer to kill that person within two to three seconds without saying anything, you know? Uh, we're gonna get to the Breonna Taylor situation. So if I'm trying to, um, you know, do this quote unquote big drug bust and I don't even, I don't even have the time to take three minutes to call the local precinct and confirm that the person that we're looking for to do this drug bust on has already been apprehended and the firearms and the drugs that they're looking for has already been confiscated. I'm going to barge through this door of, of a black life, of two black lives actually, and not even announce myself as law enforcement and begin open firing into an apartment room in, a, in an apartment building and shoot 21 different times. And then just ask questions later uh, because that helps me to feel more comfortable as a white person who's assume, who's amassed some sort of a you know position of power or is just on a on, on a street owning a home and, and doesn't want those people on their street you know and, and so i think the question that i'm going to continue to ask and, and it's one that i'm going to continue to ask mostly to white america um you know, I'm wearing this Black Lives Matter sticker. You guys all know this. I'm in my, or, or button, excuse me. I'm in my office. On my office door, there's a Black Lives Matter sign. Within one week of me putting that Black Lives Matter sign on my door, I was called a racist. Yeah. And told that this is some hate group organization that's that's made up and and they are, uh, exist. they exist to set up sting operations to kill officers. You know, I mean, this is the type of stuff that people believe when we just show up and say, hey, we would like to not be killed being our regular selves, bro. We'd like to not be killed. We'd like to matter at least as somewhere close to the same amount or level that you matter because we're here too. You know, and we're and we built this country for free and we're still here and you still think it's OK for us to just get killed with impunity and not say anything about it. Like just putting those three words together triggers you so much. It makes you so uncomfortable that mm -hmm. uh, you're not going to speak out and you're not going. You're always going to give the benefit of the doubt to the person who's taken the black life because it doesn't matter as much as your comfort. Um, and, 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 you know, I'll just be very honest. I don't know that that's going to change very soon. And if it doesn't, uh, you know, we can make some changes around the edges of this. I mean, I think the fact that, you know, this has come into the light and an arrest has been made. I mean, I have to take some solace in that, that two men who killed an innocent black man um, and weren't even arrested have been arrested. You know, it, it took a hell of a lot for that to happen. But at least that happened, you know, and it's better than it not having happened. So um, 
it's sad that we have to take solace in the very basic things that happen or in the criminal justice system. But until it shifts, until white people um, are, are, are willing to deal with a little bit of discomfort and really examine why some of this is uncomfortable for them, then it's not really going to change, bro. Um, and we'll be back here maybe next week or the week after that. Yeah, Nixon, I think you you are touching on, um, I guess, like two points. First, like you said, you, you post something as simple as a hashtag on your door and the, the cognitive dissonance that some of these people are experiencing to rather accept that this may be a, a reality, but rather they go to the far extreme of believing these absurd uh, notions of what's actually going on. And I, it, it really touches and it's rooted in uh, this inability to accept that the life that you are living as a white person in America, could it be possible that there are other people that are not living the same way? Could, could it in any way be possible that this law and system that you believe is, is righteous and fair and just, could, could it be possible, knowing the history of our country, just facts, the history of our country, could it at all be possible that these absurd uh, notions that you're insinuating as to the, the real motive behind this movement, could it be so absurd to believe that it's actually not that complicated and, and, and it's not that ridiculous as what you're suggesting? The second thing that's very frustrating is, and I think Garrison, you and Simone kind of touched on it a bit, uh, is the, these, these individual acts of extreme versions of racism uh, in some ways make it easy for, for white Americans to stay comfortable while also still claiming to be allies and supporting uh, uh, the, 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 the Black Lives Matter movement. For example, um, I, you have seen a lot of public figures, many of them who were, were white um, felt comfortable in stating that this was uh, an egregious act. They felt comfortable in coming out and saying this should be formally investigated. They felt comfortable in coming out and showing their support to the outrage and the outcry that they were seeing. But as you all have kind of stated, the problem is you cannot be considered an ally if you only want to voice your support in these extreme uh, examples of racism because the, it, it furthers the belief that this is the only type of problem that our country is having. And you cannot defeat racism in our country by only wanting to fight against the extreme versions of it. When you look yeah, at this yeah. video, when you look at this video and you say, okay, I can comfortably come out and bring my support to this because it fits within the frame of extremist type of racism, therefore I can be comfortable in stating that it's wrong, but that you, our country will never move forward if that's the only type of, of allyship that you want to to bring to, to the table. And yeah. I think that it, in some ways it's a little unfortunate that 
we are learning all of these pieces of uh, this story because like it, it doesn't move us along any further. It, it doesn't progress us as a nation because it in some ways reinforces or perpetuates the belief that uh, our country only has a problem of bad apples, not necessarily a systemic problem that yeah. breeds many of these bad apples. And that I think is part of the, the more frustrating thing is we are not really accepting the reality of our country. And when I say we, I, I'm referring to the white majority. We are not accepting that the life that we're living in America as black people is something that you have just never experienced. And that I think is, is part of the more frustrating thing is I, I, I truly do not believe white Americans have fully recognized that even that you may call yourself an, an ally, I don't quite think you've fully wrestled with the possibility that there's a lot more happening in our country that um, it, it, it won't always be these extreme versions of racism and your true test of, of being an ally means that you won't be reactive in this and that you'll be proactive in even the, the, the more complicated versions of what we're trying to explain. Uh, there's a quote I really like that's, um, it says, when you're so deeply invested in your white privilege, equality feels like oppression. Um, and I think that's kind of speaks mm. well to a lot of people within white, especially like white middle class, lower middle class America. And I know that this, this goes like levels to, to higher groups. Um, but yeah, like there's a, there's a reality that people are too comfortable with where they sit to really care about change for someone else. I mean, if, if the worst thing that happens to a community, which is like the white community, that they're kind of sad when someone gets murdered in the streets based off of the color of their skin, they're like, well, if that means giving up, something that i which is funny because no white people you don't give anything up you're not equality is not not going to take your job it's not going to take your home it's not going to change yeah. anything about your life it's going to make your life better because you're going to actually see creative credit you're going to actually see like um ownership to the people that actually create and, and bring new things to our society to and empower them to bring more because it, if we really want to talk about how culture thrives it's from the black community um and we are gonna see like the ability to be better educated um but yeah if you're only speaking out on some of these murders that are taking place in like martin luther king day like if that's where you're if that's where your anti-racism is sitting you're not anti-racism you are complacently racist you are fine yeah. with racism racism is not important enough for you to change who you vote for to change speaking out when you see it to be a, a, a bystander interventions when you see these things in public you're not teaching it you're not in churches ensuring that the white systems of our church continue the way they are and speaking out against those things like to be actually in a conversation to say, I want to eliminate this means that you want to, you're doing something to eliminate it more than saying it's bad. Like that's yeah. saying something is bad, doesn't eliminate it. Actually 
fixing the problem. You can stare at a hole in your wall for a year and until you like go by the drywall and the mud and the patch and the paint and actually fix it, like nothing's going to change other than you say like that hole is there and it kind of sucks. But like until white people are ready to say like, I've got a microphone and I'm going to pass it to someone so that they can then speak in turn for me and I'm going to speak to other people below me. Like it's never, and it's frustrating. I even had this like this week where I told y'all about that personal trainer that I did um, like last week. I messaged him and was like, yo, could you encourage everybody to jog 2.23 for a mod? And he had already texted me back a couple times about like me being tired during his workouts. Ghost, nothing, didn't even respond, didn't make note of it. I was like, bro, I'm not working out with you no more. Like I'm out of your Zoom. Because yeah. like it's just this continual people are like, ah, it's not that deep to me. I might lose a little cred there, but it's frustrating mm. for sure. So I do like um Caleb's question that Mike pinned to um the screen here. Appreciate that, Mike. Caleb asks, any suggestions for speaking up in support about speaking over people who actually mm -hmm. have firsthand experience? What do you guys think about that? Um, I think, you know, it, it kind of ties in with what what Lo Logan was, was bringing forth. And I just really want to say, I think that um, his context for going to construction sites on a regular basis was really helpful for me. And it's an angle that I would have never really thought about this from because yeah. I have never, well, maybe I have, but I've never like intentionally walked on a construction site either just to check it out or with the, you know, with the intent of maybe wanting to buy or whatever the case may be. And I think that's actually a good example of what um, a lot of white folks can do in these situations is you have a context into these situations and scenarios that I just don't have that can help us further break down what's happening, you know, you know, in these different scenarios. Um, you know, calling out the racism that you see both amongst your family members and friends and, and in your communities. Because another another thing that Logan brought out is that there was a whole community of people who saw this, who knew about it happening, that were probably on threads where this video was getting passed around or that it was at least talked about. And nobody said anything, you know. And I, I think that uh, Ahmaud Arbery's, you know, family would have loved for even one of those folks to have spoken up in that scenario, which would have been which would have been very supportive, you know. Um, yeah. So, so I think that there is a lot that that folks can do. I mean, you're not going to be able to speak to um, what it means to be black in America. We we have no problem, you know, making that plain for you. Um, and there's a plethora of books out there that can do that. Yeah, read well. a book. So we, so we don't need, you know that particular support but but there there's a lot that that can be done particularly by white people in dismantling white supremacy i, I do want to add really quick too um actually Gerson, do you want to go ahead yeah i was actually gonna pass it over to simone i think one pick up oh oh was, perfect please please i just say really quick that you know i do think that it's important for us to note that ahmad is in very in a lot of ways the exception to the rule when you're thinking about cases that we hear about right mm -hmm. cases that are advocated for so 
Ahmad has all of this support nationally, internationally, but how many of these similar situations happen in rural Georgia, rural Tennessee, New York, wherever, and we don't ever hear about them. That's why it's so important for white people specifically to be active and to be vocal in their context because you just don't know when that issue is going to rise in your sphere of influence. And it's important for you to be engaged with that so that when something like this happens, I mean, this happened so long ago on 223 that people were thinking that Ahmad had run 2.23 miles before he got shot. They didn't realize that it was the date of his, mm. of his lynching, of his killing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My dad literally asked me that. Why are you running 2.23? I mean, why? You know, yeah. people thought it was his birthday. People, it's, it happened. His the arrest of his killers happened two and a half months later, after My a God. video came My about. God. After we activated as a black community, and it was so important for those individuals, those white people who were in that community, to activate on his behalf, even when it's not popular. Even when it's not, you're not going to get a fan base. Oh, you look so cool because you're advocating. Even when nobody is seems to be listening, it's important for us to activate and to stay activated in our spaces so that the voice of um, so that these victims have voices at all times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to jump off of that as well and just say that like amplifying the voice of of black people, uh, particularly and people of color broadly is 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 so important for white allies to do. Uh, I mean, you know, Logan Nix, it's been mentioned that there is a bevy. There's so much information out there um, that has been written from the black perspective. And it's like, you know, as much as I mean, I have love for Tim Weiss and, and other, you know, allies because truly they amplify the research and yeah. the contributions of black people right. when it comes to racism. And, and, yeah. and I think one thing that I've really been frustrated with is that it, it, at times it feels as though uh, white America in the broad sense, maybe this isn't your story, but it, it feels as though white America broadly just thinks that black people are lying about their experiences. We just like mm. making this up and, and we just want attention. And it's so, it's frustrating and it's stupid. And if you, mm. as a white person, want to be helpful, believe it, I mean, do your own investigations. I mean, yeah. by all means, all, all means, but but amplify the voices of those who are saying, this is what we're experiencing and this is how it goes. Um, you know, I, and, and the, the next thing I'll say, Esther, you know, I'm seeing Esther's comments and, and I know that Nick's pinned a couple of those and I think they're really, really good. She talked a little bit about, you know, donating directly to your local Black Lives Matter chapter, which I think is a great idea. Uh, another thing kind of thinking locally, um, it's really important for you to think about your local elections, local elections, local representatives, yeah. they matter a lot. I mean, yeah. George Barnhill is in the position because those people locally either voted for someone who appointed him, right? Or they voted for him directly. And in, you know, this case, the new district attorney on the case is a lady by the name of Joyette Holmes. Joyette Holmes is the district attorney of the Cobb County Judicial Circuit Court, um, Judicial Circuit, and she is the first black woman to serve in that position. Wow. And now she will be prosecuting 
this case that is of significant consequence, mm -hmm. right? Like this is a consequential thing and it happened. Like she's on it because someone decided I'm going to put my vote behind this black woman. And there are, there is probably a black person, a Latino person, Latinx person running for something in your community who will be able to handle the issues of race, particularly immigration and like, all, they'll be able to handle things in ways with, with so much empathy and, and so much more understanding and justice orientation without all of the, you know, presuppositions of white supremacy. There's probably someone running for office who has that. Mm -hmm. And if you really want to be an ally, you will seek those people out. You'll support their campaigns. You'll vote for them. And of course, you'll get your friends and family. You'll do, do what you can to get your friends and family to do the same. I just think those are a couple yeah. of that you can be really impactful, not just on the Internet. Um, there are ways to be impactful on the Internet, amplify voices. But outside of that context, in the real world, where it matters the most, you can be very, very, you know, you can, you can make an impact. I do want to jump in real quick and just comment on Caleb's question, which I do appreciate all of your responses. So please, thank you very much. I'm really enjoying this discussion too. It's very, I guess, soothing if, if there's a lack of better way of mm. putting it. But I do appreciate us talking about this. So I, I was reading an article and it's done by uh, Emily Bazelon from the New York Times. And I just want to read this quick quote. And it's, I think I just find it super interesting. Um, because personally, I feel like white people need to reckon with their whiteness for us to really move forward in a very a tangible way in some aspects. So she writes, uh, Trump era, the Trump era, however, has compelled an unprecedented acknowledgement of whiteness as a real and alarming force. And scrolling down a bit, she says, since handling, since handling Trump, 58% of the white vote, we have been the subject of newspaper and magazine analysis about our race, based resentment, fear of declining status, and supposed economic anxiety. In the article, she also talks about how whiteness for, for years, especially in this country, has been the basis of what it means to just be an American. It's the default. Yeah. You see nude on a product, you see skin, you know, you, um, you see a, a, a what's wrong with people like flesh-like in terms of skin to describe something, it's automatically white. You see a protagonist in the in your favorite movie, it's a white person. That's the default. And I think white people really need to reckon with what it means to be white, how their power structures and the history in this country has benefited them and has created oppression for other groups and how they can use that privilege, that power that they have, that has yeah. been given to them. And again, it's for white people that are living now, you may not have, look, I understand you didn't do anything to create the situation that we are in, but we need you to help us tear it down so it can be equal for everyone. I think that's what's super important. So white people, if you're listening, please go out of your way to tear down those structures out of your way to have conversations and what Esther was saying, talking about your biases, talking about how you see black and brown yeah. people and raising your kids to see them as the default. We're yeah. all default, we're all the default race here. You know, there, there's there's no, like I'm low, if, if I load up 2K, I don't play basketball, I don't like basketball. If I load up 2K, 
<laughs> the default race is not going to be white. It shouldn't be black. It's it's whatever you want it to be. Oh, well, Larry Bird. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to transition a little bit to, I think I do know who Larry Bird is. Um, I think my brother told me about You him. do, yeah. Um, no, I just wanna, before you transition real quick, though, yes, I yes, want yes. to say to that, we, we, we constantly, drive this narrative that we want to read books and stuff from the black perspective like white people don't be scared of your perspective just dig into what that really is which is a perspective mm. of immense privilege like realizing mm. that your perspective is valuable speak from your perspective but use your perspective to actually change to other allow other people to be able to experience life from that same perspective because me trying to to speak to your ex perspective, anyone else on this chat, like it doesn't, that doesn't work. I can only like give you what you were saying, Nick's like mm -hmm. go to a, like that's all I did. I grew up as a white guy, like it's, it's just who I am. I mean, there's there's no changing these things, but like embracing that and saying like, no, no, no I'm not, there's nothing wrong, <laughs> nothing wrong with who I am, but, but there's some, wrong if I use who I am to harm someone else like yeah. that and that means complacency or like sitting still and not doing anything is a harming it's it's been spoken about for hundreds of years but but embrace like your perspective but use it to benefit people mm. started kill your transition Jordan go right ahead no you're good you're good yeah I agree I mean empathy I you know I know Simone said that word uh, several minutes ago, empathy is important. Listening mm. to black and brown people, like what Mike was saying, believing um, black and brown people. And then what Adrian and Garrison and Logan were saying too, actively being anti-racist. I recommend uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Thank you all of you. Thank all of you for putting me on. Amani got that for me for my birthday, which is a great gift. Um, an amazing book. So. There are a lot of resources out there that you can use to really be active in trying to tear these racial structures down, racist structures down, excuse me. So we want to transition to, unfortunately, another tragedy uh, that has affected the black community. And Mike spoke to this a little earlier. And let me see, my computer's very slow. Do you want me to run it down so, real quick, Jordan? Just so, just to get um, just, just what happened, or you got it? Go ahead. I got it. I got it. But I'm going to pass it to you because I know sure. you definitely have a much needed perspective yeah. that we need to hear on this. So, a family of a Louisville EMT um, was killed in what's been alleged to be a botched Louisville Metro Police raid, um, yeah. and a lawsuit was. Sorry, excuse me, excuse me. Family, sorry. The family of a Louisville EMT killed in what's been alleged to be a botched Louisville Metro Police raid has filed a lawsuit against the officers involved, claiming she did nothing to deserve to die at their hands. Breonna Taylor was shot multiple times after officers used a battering ram to get into her home on Springfield Drive in South Louisville about 1 a.m. on March 13 in order to serve a warrant so mike please yeah feel free further we know you have a very good perspective on this yeah thanks for setting the table so i just and i know we're 
we're we're right at about at the time that we usually end. So we're going to go a little over time. Folks who are watching, thanks for tuning in and, and bear with us for sure. But we thought that it was important to speak to this story as well. We don't know as much as we do about the Ahmad Arbery story because this is still sort of developing. But we wanted to make sure that we um, that we said Rihanna Taylor's name as well because we think it's important. Um, as Jordan was just saying, um, what it looks like was happening here were the, was the Louisville police were uh, trying to execute a warrant. Uh, but according to and, and to be clear, this is a civil rights lawsuit that's been brought by uh, the, the family of Breonna Taylor against the officers involved. This is not a criminal. So there's not been criminal charges brought against these police officers. So I think that's important to understand in this particular situation from what from what I've read thus far. Um, what it appears is that the police were wanting to execute a warrant. Um, but they were not at the right location. Um, the person that they were looking for in executing the warrant had already been arrested earlier that day and the, the drugs and the firearms that they were looking for had already been collected and confiscated from that individual. Uh, they show up, as you see, at about 1 a.m. at the Breonna Taylor's apartment. This, this happened in an apartment complex. And her and um, a gentleman, I believe it was her boyfriend, uh, were were sleeping when this happened, apparently. And again, they have um, witness accounts from neighbors who said that they did not, you know, they had, there was a neighbor who I believe was a next door neighbor who was up at the time this happened and did not hear the police identify themselves. All that neighbor heard was the battering ram knocking the door open and then shots being fired just indiscriminately. I think about I think it's reported about 21 or 28 bullets were sprayed into uh, the house, I believe, hitting Breonna Taylor at least eight times. Um, and uh, of course, upon entering, they did not find any drugs. They did not find any firearms other than the firearm that the gentleman who was in the house had, which I believe he was licensed to carry. Um, but he woke up thinking that they were being, uh, you know, robbed. That's what they, that's what he thought, you know, cause again, they did not, um, you know, make themselves known. And I think he actually even ended up hitting uh, one of the officers in the leg um, in the, in the back and forth as, as they were trying to figure out what in the world was going on. And now criminal charges have been brought against that person because of course they've been brought against him for shooting uh, the officer, I believe I'll look in here after someone else jumps in, but I forget exactly what they brought against him, but that's, that's what's happening right now. So Benjamin Crump, who um, is a high profile civil rights attorney has joined the legal team for Breonna Taylor's family. Um, after again, I believe it was Sean King who really helped to um, amplify this story. Um, but if, I mean, I, I don't really know what to say here, man. Like they, she was asleep in her, in her freaking apartment and you, they weren't even at the right place. There was no, no drugs in the, I mean, it's just crazy. They didn't, they didn't uh, know, they didn't say who they were. I mean, nothing do they just knocked down the door and started shooting, you know? Um, and, and she's dead. I think her family said she had just, she's an EMT. She had just gotten a, a really good job with UPS that she was going to start the next day. 
Um, and she's gone, you know, she, she's gone. And so of course there'll, there'll be more details. I think I'm pretty sure I read that there's no body camera footage because the, the police in this County don't wear body cameras, uh, because of course, you know, they don't, uh, they probably will after this because of the pressure from the public. Um, so unless other video emerges or audio emerge of this, we may not get more than what we know right now. But I think what we know right now is obviously troubling enough. Yeah. yeah and Nestor mentioned that. I think I did mention that the person they were looking for was. Yeah, it was already in custody. It was already in custody, which is just like, y'all don't talk to each other. Like, what Like what are y'all doing? Like, I mean, what's, what? I mean, did that not give you an indication that you might be at the wrong place? That there was another group of cops out looking for that person at a different location? I mean, what? I mean, uh, yeah. So that's. That's where this one is, man, and it's it's heartbreaking, it's infuriating, um, but but I'm sure that there'll be you know some stuff concocted to to tell us how this was justified. But and just so you know, Kenneth Walker was who was her boyfriend was charged with first degree assault and attempted murder of an officer. Oh wow! Well, isn't that isn't that lovely? Yeah. But they were in his house. No, yeah, man. literally. It's, it's it's crazy. And, <laughs> it's and this is and wait. So just I'm not. I don't even have a point. But this is still like a civil rights. This isn't even like the the courts aren't. No, nah, this, this is a private. This is a civil lawsuit that right. they're talking about being filed. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. It, you know, you would think that the people who would be most loudly um, rallying against this stuff. Same thing with the Ahmaud Arbery case are those who are so adamant about their constitutional rights not being violated. You know, like those groups, like the, where's the 2A group who to get, where's the NRA for this situation? Where like you come to my house, I should have the right to shoot you. You know what I mean? Like where are those who are, are out protesting being forced to wear masks because they believe that that's a violation of their constitutional rights? Why aren't those people also on mm -hmm. the front line saying that no no one can come up to me arbitrarily accuse me of some random crime and hold me at gunpoint that's a violation of my rights and, and that's what you yeah. did to a mob so so i'm gonna protest where are those individuals right now uh, it, it seems as though their philosophy isn't necessarily a strict uh literal reading of the constitution but rather one uh, a reading of the constitution that excludes black and brown bodies yeah, yeah they're not out because they don't see the people of color in this country as valuable enough to have those same rights. They right. actually side with the people holding the guns because they're like, well, those people are infringing on our rights already. So we're not going to support them because we believe in race killings as it is. I mean, not to, <laughs> not to blanket, but I mean, it, the silence says enough. Yeah. I, I think I, it also reminds me of, uh, it's just a conversation, particularly when it comes to people of color and the police force, um, that I, I, I feel like it, it does not get talked about enough on a larger scale because we often hear it from the perspective of the officer when the retelling of the situation is given to us. For example, we often hear um, uh, a reoccurring theme of, you know, perhaps the, the officer was fearful of their life and therefore their actions were, were justified. But I think in a very 
uh, complicated way. I don't feel as though the conversation is really being told as to how terrified many people of color are of police officers. When, when I look at my upbringing and I can re recount multiple moments of, um, uh, police officers being invited to our AYS programs Saturday evening. And the theme of the conversation was as a kid, this is me at seven, eight years old, nine years old, listening to a police officer saying, this is what you do when you're interacting with the police officer so that you don't get killed. When I am listening to my father telling me, this is what you say when you get pulled over, you say, yes, sir, no, sir, right away, sir, and you keep your hands on the steering wheel so that you can walk away from the situation um, alive. And that I think is something that really never gets talked about is, uh, I don't think America realizes how terrifying officers are to, to just ordinary people of color. And so when I, when I hear this story and I'm like, I would be terrified of my mind, out of my mind, seeing them barge into my space in such a violent manner. And, and, and it, it, it's in some ways hard for me to process that, that, that uh, something like this could go down and like, I don't know, man, it, it, it really frustrates me because I think about scenarios that I've had with officers where when I see the flashing lights come behind my car, I start sweating, my heart starts pounding, and it, it is a, a terrifying experience to, to go through. And that, I think, when it comes to the conversation of people of color and the police force, it's, it's rarely on a large level being retold from the lens of, okay, but in a very justified manner, people of color are also terrified of police officers and rightfully so, because in, in many cases, the way officers interact with people of color is not one that presents uh, uh, an experience of protection and service, but rather one of uh, very violent, very forceful compliance. Uh, and, and it is one where it, it does not feel as though this individual that has that badge um, has my best interest at heart. And that I, I feel as though that conversation never gets uh, talked about enough. Yeah. I just want, I just want to say again, like, I, I don't know. I'm it. The, the thing is like, it, it's likely in this case, from what we know that, um, and I don't know if this is a good or bad thing, but it's likely that Brianna Taylor just like in the midst of waking up randomly at 1 a.m. in the morning probably didn't even have the the time to even consider what was happening to her, you know? And that's what's just so crazy about this, you know, to me is just uh, the idea that um, just to the simple fact that, you know, these people have badges that 
they can make such a fatal mistake and um mm-hmm. and there be no accountability um and then the system is just built into um to be as resistant as possible to holding officers accountable in these scenarios and, and i think that them knowing that inevitably has an effect on the behavior because if i think i think that if they knew that there were more accountability that these patterns of practice would change and and they'd be more careful um because i you know it's king who said that um you know we can't legislate a person's heart but what we can keep them from from killing you, or we can at least regulate them killing me. And I think the sad thing is that that doesn't always apply to law enforcement, um, which is which is pretty tragic for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It is. Uh, it is definitely something that is hard to process, hard to handle. That we can't even feel just safe our own country but it just it's, it's 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 incredible how it's just become the norm now but i do hope we can all continue to seek justice as much as possible in any capacity that we can and we also hope our allies can support us in in our endeavor to tear down the system and to seek justice in the same manner too so thank you all for this discussion i know it was one that was difficult, but it was also one that was very much needed. Um, We do want to segue into PMI to close out. PMI, of course, stands for Piqued My Interest, and that is when we uh, present a film, television, book, uh, piece of music that has inspired us that we would love to recommend to friends or really anyone that's listening. First, we're going to start with Simone, our special adorned guest here. Simone, could you please let us know what piqued your interest this week? Yes, I'd be happy to. So um, one of my good friends, um, Rhea Moffitt-Brooke, who may be watching this now, um, her and I are going to start a book club. And we have been, um, we have actually been talking about this book um, called In the Wake um, on Blackness and Being by Christina Sharp. So I've kind of been delving into that this week um, and it's been very good so far. So, yeah. And thank you again so much, Simone, for coming on. Uh, We should just have you and Danny and Esther on every single time. That would be (laughs) great for me. Hey, (laughs) we're down. Excellent. Adrian, could you go next for us, please? Yes. So um, last, I guess, 24 hours or so. um, Well, let me preface it. So uh, you all know I love film. I love um, the writing of television series. And one of my, well, not one of my, he's definitely my favorite showrunner slash writer director is Damon Lindelof. Uh, He's one of the writers, directors for uh, Watchmen, uh, Leftovers, Lost. Um, just to name a few. Um, and one of the things that he was done, doing in um, an interview was he talks about um, his process on how he writes. And more specifically, he was referring to um, what convicted him 
to um, do a mini series on Watchmen. For those of you that don't know, that was a show that aired, um, I believe, earlier this year. And um, it, it takes place several years after the 1980s comic series Watchmen. Um, and he talks about that for many perspectives when it comes to writing a story, whether it's for film or television, um, the, the main co uh, question that gets asked is um, uh, write what you know and what it is that you want to write about. But for this particular concept, he asked the question not on what do I know, but rather um, why do I care? And, and the reason why he asked that question was if, for those of you that have watched the show, um, he starts it off by conversing um, and really uh, exploring the, the Tulsa uh, massacre. And um, through the show, it really shows how that incident in many ways um, was reframed, was um, in some ways historically changed the narrative had, had changed in a way and he really talked shows and talks about um how we have seen that in many cases in the conversation of race for example you either did not know about the tulsa massacre or it was taught to you as a tulsa race riot which is very different and it presents a very uh softer tone to how egregious and evil that massacre actually was and he he really tried to use that as the framework for why he he um created that mini series in watchmen to really show um how our framing of race historically and how uh we have accepted this historical inaccuracy of race in many ways has framed uh, a belief system of race currently uh, that is inaccurate and that I think is profound. Um, HBO is the location of Watchmen. All of the episodes are currently there right now. I would encourage everyone to watch it. I loved it. I love his writing. Definitely a big fan of what he does. So that's definitely been what's been on my interest for sure. Thank you for sharing. Um, I also think Watchmen is great too. It's a great TV show. I think most of us have watched it here. It's very well done. Logan, can you please go first next? First scene Watchmen, just out there. I didn't watch the movie into a season two. <laughs> okay, so it's not just me, right? <laughs> yeah, you, 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 got, you got to figure that out, my guy. <laughs> hey, yeah, Russia, Russia hey, coming for us, bro. Wait, wait. First, 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 they tried to copyright us. Now, Russia coming for us, bro. Honestly, honestly, Garrison, the face he made was very reassuring because I saw my computer was tweaking. <laughs> I was like, what is going on? Right. We're going we go, we go to try to bring him back. We'll see. We'll see what happens. And while we wait, let's have Nick's go first and hopefully he can erase that demonic event out of our memory. Okay. <laughs> Let me let me see here. Oh my goodness! I say I rebuke you. <laughs> Yo, you got You got to log off to log back on, bro. Log off and log back on. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead on that note. Um, 
I, I just dropped a book in the in the chat. It's a book called uh, Building Bridges Across the Racial Divide. It's by Larry and Sandy Feldman, who I believe they're watching this. I'm, I'm going to post a, a comment from them before I talk about the book. They talked about what we can do here in Berrien County. We have an opportunity to elect a wonderful young black man, Chokwe Pitchford, as one of our state representatives this November. He can win if, if, enough, if enough of us support him. Um, we're not a 501c3, so we could we could tell you to vote who to vote for. So vote, we're gonna vote for Chokeway for sure out here. <laughs> Thank you for shouting that out, Larry and Sandy. It's good to keep up on that. But uh, yeah, building bridges across the racial divide. Great book by them, white anti-racist authors. Wonderful couple has been doing beautiful, powerful work here in Berrien County, in the Benton Harbor area specifically. Uh, they've been uh, part of the Calling All Colors Choir in the in the Benton Harbor area, which has been an intentional anti-racist effort for a few decades in connecting uh, young persons of color with young white folks. And of course, they connect with a lot of the studies that show, uh, particularly around things like implicit bias and things of that nature, that if we do... Um, have this kind of intentional collaborative engagement at the early stages of life, that it can make you a much better and more productive citizen across lines of racial difference. And so um, I, I definitely resonate with that because sometimes when, when folks come here to Andrews, um, it's a little bit too late, amen? Uh, but uh, no, it's, it's never too late. It's never too late to be an anti-racist. Somebody say amen. But hey, if you could be one sooner, uh, you know, the Lord the Lord would would be lifted up by that, amen. So uh, this is a this is a this is a good piece of literature for sure. Definitely make sure you you cop this. I, I dropped it in the in the chat, and you know, feel free to support that effort. Very good. Um, Garrison, can you go for us, please? Sure. Um, so this is going to be, I'm, I'm pulling a back-to-back -back on this one. Um, I, I mentioned this before, but this book is has just become so important to me. Um, and I just want to, again, just kind of reiterate, uh, I actually had the opportunity to bring, to bring um, Dr. Rita Walker in to do a seminar for my church. And, and of course, we made this a public event so anyone could join. And she, she talked a lot. Um, the thing that I think caught most people's interest, which has piqued my interest as well, is this idea of psychological fortitude. It's something that we might call mental fortitude or mental toughness, right? And she talks about it from the perspective of the fact that as Black people, particularly people of color broadly, women, there are so many stressors that mm. you end up encountering throughout your life. And maybe even throughout your day to day life and and having an, an accurate assessment of your psychological fortitude is so important for you just to be able to assess where you are. So she uses a zero to 10 scale. Uh, if you are at a zero, you might your PF level. Right. If your PF level, your psychological fortitude level is at a zero, maybe you're contemplating suicide. Maybe you're thinking about killing yourself or coming up with a plan to kill yourself. If you're at, say, a five, you're, you're not having a good day at all. You're ready to break down. Say you're at a 10, it's your birthday and everything's going well and you're having a great time in your life. Uh, so she uses this scale and she invites people to, to assess where they are. Are you a seven today? 
well, what happened? Because yesterday you were a nine or you have five because yesterday you were actually a seven. So like, tell me what's going on. And I think it's a great self-assessment. It's a great tool to use. The reality is that black people are killing themselves. They are they are, are experiencing suicidality at a rate that is is growing. It's it's astronomical and it's unprecedented. And, yeah. and it's often because we're we're becoming more disconnected from the things that have provided, you know, stability and, and helped us with our psychological fortitude over the years. And just being able to, to assess yourself, whether you are black, white or anywhere in between, by all means, please get the book. It, it's super informative. And, and I'll say this last thing. The reason why I think this stood out so much to me was because during this seminar, which again, that we opened up to the public, there were people who were who bombed it with racist remarks. I mean, we're talking about a mm -hmm. seminar about black mental health and how we can better address the mental health issues in our community, within ourselves and know ourselves better. And people were in the comments using all kinds of racist um, remarks. They were like just like troll. I mean, just going and going, and I'd have to remove the person, and then someone else would come back, and they go into the Q and A section and just put the N word, N word, N word, N word, and F this and that, and and it was it was really alarming. And it's one of those yeah. things that in the moment you feel. I felt so much stress to try to get to like I was the you know host of the conversation, so I'm trying to remove the the person. And it, it's crazy in the moment, the adrenaline to try to get them out and make sure I'm protecting my members and those who've come here as a respite from the psychological terrorism that is being a person of color in this world, right? Like they're trying to get away from that. And even in this supposedly safe space, there is someone who's decided to be, you know, to, 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 to assault. Um, I, I think it, it, just, it just made me aware of how important books like this uh, these are really important pieces of literature and, and being able to kind of assess where you are is so important because the world is unrelenting. And even if you aren't a black person, you're stressed, like you're yeah. probably stressed. You're probably experiencing all kinds of economic anxiety and what's the future going to hold. And this virus is out here. So not even just to limit it to that broadly, assess where you are, know that you're loved, know that we care about you. We like we want you in this world. You know, it's tomorrow's going to be better. Um, I just become so aware of of how important it is to affirm that in people and make sure that they know that that th that there a, a brighter day is coming. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, Garrison. FYI, my microwave is just kind of roaring right now. So between that and the Logan thing, uh, I'm very afraid that we're just going to end uh, <laughs> super soon. <laughs> Uh, before we end, I'm going to give my PMI. Uh, my partner and I have definitely been enjoying A Little Fires Everywhere, which is a Hulu series um, on Hulu, of course, and it's by Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington. It's yeah. amazing. It is a great meditation on microaggressions, race relations, and how even white complacency fuels the racism within a community. Mm. Um, and it's amazing. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Beneath all of that is a very effective and very beautiful study and drama on motherhood and what it means to be a mother um, and how mothering affects a woman's journey through life. So I highly recommend it. It's on Hulu. 
And Logan, real quick, could you give us your PMI? We hope we prayed for you, so you should be okay. My God, we'll be good. Hey guys, thank you so much for coming to Affirmative Interaction. We love that you can spend time with us in this important discussion. And we really hope that you can take care of yourself. Um, in this time, you take care of your mental health through all yeah. that has happened. And thank you for spending this time with us. We feel it is a sacred time and we're so glad you decided to join us in this discussion and to affirm our interactions. Have a good night. Thank we'll you. see you next time. Thank you, Simone. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Simone. And pray for Logan. Yeah, pray for Logan. You know, he'll be, be back hopefully. Repeat that. Repeat that.